And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. race is on and in a few days it will be for real with the Australian Grand Prix kicking off the first action of the 2020 Formula One season. The talking is over, the testing is over and come Saturday afternoon in Melbourne everyone will finally have to lay their cards on the table and we'll see how quick everyone really is. But with Mercedes looking strong in testing, might the season opener have a sting in the tail just like it did last year when favourite Ferrari failed. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to preview the new season are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Scott Mitchell, you're recovering from the, the, the arduousness of testing in your, your Stockholm bolt hole. How, how's it over there? Yes, yeah, not too bad, thank you. It's nice and cold. Uh, weekend, we had lovely blue skies and sunshine, but today's given way to lots of cloud and, and misery. So it's a little bit like being back in, in London, I think, but just a little bit colder. Well, talking of people in remote locations, we've also got Mark Hughes. You're uh, you're up in the north. Is it is it grim up north as always, or is it uh, sunny and pleasant? You know, Manchester. If you draw a line through the middle of, of the UK, it's still in the south, so I'm not that remote. Um, and it's um, it has been raining for about forty days. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. If that's the sign of the apocalypse coming, but it's um, it's stopped today. So maybe maybe we we'll get away with it. Well, that's the list of the signs of the apocalypse. Then that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's extending a reasonable amount at the moment. But we'll we'll uh, we'll let you be a southerner then on, on your on your geographical definition. That's a uh, that's that's a good way to join the club. So that makes Scott the most northerly one. So uh, there we go. We we've got that solved. Well, we've got the new season starting. Testing kind of suggested Mercedes was in pretty good shape, but it it was it was an interesting one, wasn't it, Mark? Because it was. It's, it wasn't quite as clear-cut as perhaps last year's was. And, of course, last year's proved not to be very effective in predicting Melbourne. But it, th- there's there's a few things you can slice and dice that suggest that certainly Ferrari are a lot stronger than they, they looked. And then there's also this sort of feeling of what Red Bull might be able to do. Yeah, exactly. I think um, 
Mercedes of the top three teams had the most um, straightforward program. So they, they got their performance running done in um, mainly in the, in the first week, actually. And then they were working away at um, further understanding set up and things on the second week. Um, but yeah, the Ferrari picture is a lot more rosy than the one lap times made it look. Um, and that was suggested by a Vettel run on the first week and, and, uh, over a stint, but um, on a full race simulation on the final day for Charles Leclerc, um, it really it confirmed that picture that really they, 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 they still look a little away from Mercedes, but um, as good as... as Good as Red Bull, maybe maybe even edging Red Bull, um, and well clear of the the others, well clear of the the you know the so-called Class B or midfield. Yeah, but we always kind of expected, even though there were people suggesting Racing Point might be able to pick off the big three on merit, that it, that gap was never going to be closed down completely. I think it'll be closer, but I think it'll be uh, another step closer, and there'll still be that that chasm there. But it it's interesting, isn't it, Scott? Because there is an interpretation of this that says actually we could be on for quite a close season because you can argue either Mercedes is 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 a chunk ahead or you can look at some of these things and say actually those three teams could be something approaching that condensed three-way fight we want that's probably hoping for too much but it's that there's a lot of unanswered questions aren't there yeah there are I feel, feel like it was one of those pre-seasons that we we kind of thought it was going to build to this crescendo of answers in the second week and we got we did get more hints and clues, but I still don't feel like we know exactly what to expect. And I know pre-season testing has been a bit misleading in, in the past. Last year is the is the best example, but at least you came away from pre-season feeling like there was a, a fairly firm verdict. And on this occasion, I'm just with with Ferrari, there's still that the doubt over how honest they're actually being because you know, their rivals just are just adamant that they're not as, as they're not behind quite how they they say they are red bull you know you had this um apparent element of instability because we saw both drivers going off at, at different times but they just seem so calm and confident about everything that it's a bit like well you know do they have something up their sleeve that we're not expecting and meanwhile mercedes just being mercedes uh, racking up the laps and lapping quickly as well but they've got this uh, reliability spectre hanging over them because they've had a few engine problems through testing so feels like we've got sort of different kinds of doubts about all three teams um, you know if you if you're taking a punt as, as you suggested it did look like Merck won the testing war maybe with Red Bull just behind and Ferrari a little bit off but that 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 could quite easily change I think as well Melbourne is historically not the most powerful predictor of what's going to happen. You tend to see sometimes slightly extended gaps there. And Mercedes always seem to, to go very strongly at Albert Park. In fact, I think throughout the hybrid era, they've always won in Melbourne, haven't they? So that, that's very much a circuit where they know how to do well. What, what do you think, Mark? Do you think we have to take as, with a pinch of salt almost as much yeah, as in testing mean, anything that happens uh, in, in the Australian week? Yeah, obviously you always take it with a little bit of pinch of salt, but it's, it's, it's a... We we are much better informed now than we were two weeks ago. Um, we have a sort of rough or you know an order of magnitude idea. Um, but yeah, Melbourne is traditionally very strong for Mercedes and particularly strong for Hamilton. Hamilton usually um, blitzes it in qualifying there, um, so it, it's fairly untypical. It's you know road um, public road surface dusty. Um, yeah, it's not a typical, and, and it's not a typical circuit, and we usually so take a reading after the first sort of 
four or five races. Um, then going back to Scott's point about how um, Honest Ferrari are being, I, as far as I can tell, they were, they were using all sorts of different engine modes, but um, I don't think we actually saw a, a high engine mode, low fuel run as such from them, which is why they're behind in the headline times. But in the race runs, that tends to go away because everybody's in, in uh, race mode, um, engine modes. And on that, they did look very competitive. It's always tricky with the the, the long run analysis because that, like you say, it's harder to hide things there. But at the same time, particularly now you're into, there's all sorts of fuel concerns and engine modes, etc. It's It's slightly more complicated than it was, say, 15 years ago when you had the refueling era when cars are operating in a much narrower band uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the race pace so it's 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 really hard isn't it the uh to, to get to get a feeling for it but uh yeah ferrari are very interesting because they're clearly trying to manage expectations should we say and make sure that they don't go to australia expected to dominate like they did last year and then and they're not doing it but it, it's just hard to get a, a feel on it i hope they've not been too concerned about about hiding things, should we say? Because that you know they, they can only go as quickly as they as they can go, can't they? I mean, you you spoke to the Ferrari guys quite a bit in uh, in testing, Scott. If you had to put, if you had five quid to put on it as to where Ferrari would be in Australia, what what would you go for? Oh God, well, is it five quid of my money or your money? It's a it's five quid that you've mysteriously been uh, been handed, and you have to put it on this particular bet. And you're fine. Oh, and you're yeah. fine. You just found it. You found it under the sofa. I don't know who's it belongs to. <laughs> you're you're fi- in which case you'll find fi- you'll find fifty quid if you don't back anyone. In which case, uh, I I would be willing to sort of side with my sort of more cynical self and not believe that Ferrari's in that much trouble. And I'd put the I'd put the fibre on them to be on the podium in in Australia. I'm not brave enough to put it specifically on first, second, or third. But I I, I I would be surprised if they're not in 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 the mix there. And on the subject of how exactly how much they might be trying to mislead people, I thought that something Matteo Bonotto said in the final week of testing, which was, I think there is quite an element of truth to it. It's that you know this is Ferrari under which is under a massive amount of scrutiny and pressure in Italy all the time. If they wanted to relieve pressure, then I understand why setting expectations low and then looking like heroes in Australia would help. But in the meantime, in the weeks between the car launch when there was already noises coming out of Italy that the car was a bit behind, all the way up to Australia, you've basically got the Italian press on your back wondering if you've done a good enough job and asking why you're behind and putting pressure on you that way. So Bonotto's argument was that the best way to avoid pressure is to go out and be mega from the start and saying that they're behind is actually only going to increase expectation for them to, to recover and, and do a good job in Australia and beyond. Well, yeah, that's one way of uh, one way of looking at it. But yeah, I think probably on balance, you'd say in Australia, Ferrari will have a bit of a, a bit of a battle to, uh, to, to be in the mix. And I guess the, the real wild card is, is Red Bull that there was never like that from what i've i've seen at the times there was never kind of a run of red bull that made you say wow actually they they could be really mega the headline lap times were, were fine although verstappen i think when he was having those quick runs at the end of the, the final day of the test could certainly have gone uh, at least a few tenths quicker uh, in the trim he was running in but at the same time red bull seemed quite 
optimistic, don't they? And Honda have made a good step. So what, what do you reckon of, of Red Bull, Mark? Is it going to be another season of start off behind, catch up, and then we get to the end of the year and say, oh, well, they've come on really well, so they can start next year good now? Or have they <laughs> yeah. actually pulled off I, having a good car from the start? No, I, I, think, I think they're in pretty good shape to start the season. Um, maybe not as um, fully rounded yet as Mercedes, but I don't think they go- don't think we're going to turn up at Melbourne and find that actually they're a second off the pace, which is what happened last year and in 2017, um, both times after major regulation changes. Um, I think they'll be competitive uh, straight off, um, but yeah, I'd be looking for them to develop that car, them and Honda to develop that car to be. Um, hopefully um, a car that can go bat to bat with the Mercedes and, and fight out the championship with them. That's, that's my hope. Uh, I don't think it's an unrealistic hope yet. Um, but yeah, there were little there were little glimpses of the car looking fantastic um, on certain types of corner. But as, um, as we've all written about, it, it did seem to be getting in, um, its drivers into a, a lot of incidents. Um, or the drivers were getting into a lot of incidents with it, um, and, and seemed to be in corner entry, um, breaking into slow speed corners. There does, does seem to be something a little imbalanced about it. And I know um, Gary Anderson has his th- uh, theory on why that might be, and it sounds quite feasible to do with um, how loaded the outboard end of the wing is and how you're suddenly opening up the area behind it when you put on a lot of steering lock, as you do on a, a slow corner. And that sounds like a good working theory for to explain an awful lot of incidents, but a car that's inherently pretty quick. Yeah, it absolutely tallies with like through the first sector, it was looking really good the the, the Red Bull, but then some of the so called uh, the turn ten obviously, and then the chicane, and just that last sector, just a little bit iffy. It's hard to tell how much of that could come down to overdoing it a bit on the tyres, particularly in that uh, that period where Verstappen was trying the, the the quick laps at the end of end of testing. But yeah. That, Honda have clearly made gains, so Red Bull, you're not looking not looking too bad. But I guess it, we've kind of talked about the the relative performance of the of the cars, but we've got quite a fascinating kind of driver storylines this year, haven't we? You've got Lewis Hamilton going for that record equaling seventh world championship, which seems astonishing to say. Really, we thought that Michael Schumacher record would never be threatened, let alone equaled or, or maybe even even broken if uh, if Hamilton uh, keeps going and still has the car. You've got the Ferrari storyline with Leclerc being on on top of Vettel last year, but can Vettel hit back and earn himself a, a new Ferrari deal? And you've got Max Verstappen, who nobody's on, in any doubt can fight for the championship. I mean, for me, I'd love to see Verstappen in a, in a championship fight because we know he's a force of nature. He's a magnificent driver. And that, that sort of Hamilton, Verstappen versus, and we have to say Leclerc rather than Vettel at this stage, That that's the, the kind of dream scenario, isn't it? And you've got three drivers there who are all... Yeah, really, mag- really magnificent, and maybe Leclerc a bit behind in terms of his his development. Just it's only his third season, but you know what a magnificent trio of, of drivers there we've got. Yeah, this is this is one of the um, the, the the great periods in terms of uh, you know the depth of quality in the field and um, the new guys coming up is extremely high quality. But we've still got Lewis from the previous generation still operating at or near his his peak. So yeah. It, for that reason, we really, really do hope that um, there's going to be a, a more level playing field in terms of the machinery and we can just let see them fight it out so that the the outcome is determined pretty much by the the, the, the quality of the drives. Yeah, it's, it's great when you get these kind of generational battles, isn't it? And ultimately, Lewis Hamilton at 35, he's 
okay, that's at the upper end of his career. He's got he's got fewer years ahead of him than behind him, but he's still you can at thirty five still be kind of in that that prime window, even if there has been any slight deterioration in some areas. More than made up for by the experience and what we have seen from Hamilton. It's just that great ability in recent years to just, particularly the last three years or so, I think 2016, he learned quite a big lesson in terms of how you go about making sure you win a championship. Just good judgment, knowing when to fight his battles, nailing key passes when he has to, backing out of things when he knows that it's not worth taking the taking the risk. But Scott, I guess what we really want to see is if we can see Hamilton consistently challenged, then there'll be more questions asked of him, shall we say. You know, he's a magnificent driver, but... You just wonder what happens when particularly Verstappen and Hamilton go to head-to-head and then we see Verstappen in a situation where he's not just sniping for the odd win. He's got to think about the championship as well. So he, he can't necessarily always get away with doing these sort of late moves that maybe require a tiny bit of, uh, of, of accommodation, shall we say, from the, from the driver he's battling with. Yeah, it will be really interesting uh, for, for Hamilton's side, Verstappen's side, but also you know Leclerc as well if he's in the mix because we saw last year you know, Monza was a good example of uh, Leclerc getting aggressive and maybe even overstepping the mark under breaking for the for the second chicane. And Hamilton even said, you know, if he wasn't going for the for the title, he doesn't move. And and they have a they have a clash. And on the Verstappen side of things, uh, I I just get the impression that Lewis doesn't. It, I don't think Lewis quite knows how to go wheel to wheel with Verstappen. In an, in an even fight because every time that's happened it was all well and good in, in Brazil last year Lewis said you know gloves are off title's done so I'm going to go out properly but it's kind of like it's, it's that's still different if you if the title's wrapped up that's not the same mentality as with the title on the line against your against your rival I think you race differently so the idea that the idea that we've not seen Hamilton go up against these guys in genuinely even circumstances that's what makes this year so fascinating because I want to see that I want to see that sort of whether it's the changing of the guard or seeing if Hamilton can rise to the occasion and and just prove that you know there's still uh, there's still life in in the old dog yeah it's a little bit like when we saw Alonso and, and Schumacher doing battle in the in, in the mid the mid noughties and I would just love to see what happens. See, has Verstappen got the restraint to to, to manage that situation properly? Is this where we maybe see... Because Lewis has always been very, very good at avoiding the dark arts, but is he going to need to sort of work out how close he can go to the limit against Verstappen and Leclerc? Is that going to be part of some part of what he has to add to his arsenal so it's fascinating it's arguably the biggest unknown going into the season how those three drivers will actually engage with each other on track if the title's on the line it's one of those years that that if the car performance allows it it's set up for some titanic battles isn't it mark because you feel like Hamilton and Verstappen will have to if they're in a title fight they'll have to have some kind of showdown then you've got the potential for some kind of on-track clash and almost the same with Verstappen and Leclerc as well you know we saw them getting quite racy particularly after Austria last year so it's just sort of this tinderbox that that could go off particularly with the fact you've got Hamilton knowing that he has to fight off this next generation who he knows will knock him off his perch eventually but he wants to stay up there as long as he can. Yeah, exactly. It's got it's got many uh, dimensions. This battle, if if we get three equally matched cars or three cars that can race each other, um, because uh, you, you're talking about how does uh, Lewis race Max? Um, does he does he have to make a stand and say no, I'm not moving, or and they have the accident? It's okay saying that when the other guy is your only competition, but when there's a third guy that you might be letting through in doing that. It, it changes the dynamic again. 
And yeah, as you say, in these sort of contests, these generational turning um, type of contests, it is ultimate history says it's always the younger guy that eventually prevails, but it doesn't have to be yet. There's no saying when that is. It, 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 it might be now, it might be three or four years time. Um, and that's watching that, watching the sort of um, the king of the pride, sort of uh, trying to keep his place off the young pretenders is, is, is one of the great recurring storylines of the sport and um, we're very well placed to see an epic version of it but as long as those three cars or at least two of them um, can you know race each other on on equal terms yeah that's the the still the the unknown at this this stage and it's it's interesting as well because sometimes these sort of generational battles we get frustrated because a driver either retires or going back uh, going back in time sometimes we've lost drivers at uh, Kim obviously we never we never quite saw the Schumacher Senna battle play out properly and you know there's 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 plenty of examples of that going further back but here we've we've really got it laid out in front of us which is why I really hope the things will be uh, will be similar how do we see Sebastian Vettel's role in all of this because People always say, oh, a driver like that's got nothing to prove, four times world champion, etc. But he has got everything to prove, hasn't he? He's got to show he can do it against this this younger generation. He's got to show he can cut out the mistakes. He's got to show he can earn another Ferrari deal. And on current trajectory, I would say if he has another year like last year, particularly if there's problems with things like the collision with Leclerc, which I think in, in Interlagos, despite what Ferrari might have said publicly, I think we all would agree that was that was a, a Vettel error. If that happens again, he's not going to be staying there beyond beyond this year, is he? So he's, this is a guy fighting for his career and a guy who, at his best, is absolutely stunning. So what do you expect from, from Vettel, Mark? Um, he's got it all to do, as you say. Uh, he He's fully capable of um, springing a surprise out of nowhere. But, and I think we saw in qualifying in Japan last year, he suddenly just pulled a lap out of the bag that left Leclerc sort of, you know, confused because he thought he'd done a great lap. Um, so Seb can, he's got great depth of resource um, and he's incredibly competitive. And he, I can't imagine a situation in which he could be more motivated than he, he will be going into this year. But he's definitely not wired up to be a number two. He, he can't I, I cannot imagine Seb sort of taking stock and thinking, okay, he's a tenth or so quicker than me. Um, over the season, he's going to beat me, so I'll just do the best I can and, and, and still have a nice time. He talks about he still loves the car, he still loves driving, still loves competing, but, but there's an element of Seb that is just going to be deeply, deeply hacked off if he finds himself falling into the number two role. And it's going to be very, very difficult to go against someone of Claire's caliber with all that energy behind him and you sense the team more behind him than behind Seb to do that over a season race after race after race to, to be competing on level terms and then you go into a weekend not knowing which of them is going to be the quicker guy I think that's a very difficult program for Seb to put together in the circumstances that he's facing could be a difficult situation for Ferrari to manage as well but I think with with Seb you know he's publicly he he sort of tries to play all this down doesn't he He says well yeah you know mistakes happen etc but we have seen drivers in the past who are really ruthless and they have got that single-mindedness to do something that's a mistake that's stupid that they shouldn't do say no it was fine and you, you know they believe it but I almost feel that Seb's too he's almost wired up to normally to really do that and I, I, I get the feeling he sat there saying sort of telling himself 
right, this isn't a problem, this isn't my mistake, but you know, he'll look at what happened in Talagos and think, oh, what did you do that for? Because he just he just loses, he falls out of that. It's that. just a split-second competitive panic, is, is that the trait we've seen over the last two or three years. Yeah, that's a, a great way to, to describe it. And I think, I don't think he knows how to do it. I think he's going into the season, doing his level best, the motivation's there, but I just, I just don't know whether the Ferrari environment is... Is right. What do you make of it, Scott? Because Red Bull got a lot out of Vettel. He had a great relationship with his race engineer, uh, Guillaume Rockelam, who seemed to help keep him in a window most of the time. But you know, do, are you, would you back Seb to to make something of this? We heard Mattia Bonotto saying his his uh, well, I forget the phrase he used, but it's basically keeping Seb as his first choice. But that I think implies a, a question of uh, my first choice is Seb delivers at the level we know he can do consistently and stops messing it up <laughs> so that we can keep it. Yeah, because I think the, the the level that Seb's operated at at times over the last two years, it just isn't it isn't befitting of a of a guy who should command a, a top seat in in Formula One, and that's not to say that that Seb has been has not been good enough over the last two or three seasons to to race for Ferrari. It just means that like when he when he's had his bad days, my God, have they been bad days? So it, it's just been a bit it's been a bit tricky for him. I I think. I think he can. I think he can rise to the occasion this year, but I think a lot of it will depend on um, the quality of the car, and I think it will depend on Leclerc's trajectory as well. Because the big difference that I see uh, with Vettel at Ferrari compared to Red Bull, obviously, I wasn't there to, to to judge Vettel in his Red Bull days, but the impression I get from everything I've I've heard and and, and read from from the likes of you two is that Vettel had that environment where it was just. That it was, he was just king of the castle, and in in Ferrari, not only does he now not have that uh, that undeniable number one status because of Leclerc's quality and the way he adapted to to the to the rigors of driving for Ferrari last year, you've also got a car that's not best suited to him. Perhaps you've also got an environment that doesn't necessarily do a lot to keep its drivers' emotions under control. We saw. We heard plenty of times last season how much Leclerc got rumbled during Grand Prix or qualifying sessions because he wasn't being given the information he needed. So Ferrari's just got that little element. I feel like Ferrari's always running at a higher percentage of chaos than any of the other top teams. And when you've got emotional drivers, I don't think that's conducive to getting the best out of them. So I don't think the Ferrari environment is necessarily as compatible with Vettel as his Red Bull days were that's not to say that it can't get like that and you can't still get the best out of him but that would be my theory as to why you don't necessarily see Vettel at that peak all of the time yeah, I think that's fair he, he was magnificent at times during that Red Bull spell and you know particularly in the blowing diffuser days he was able to just make the car do amazing things when he when he was in that uh, in that zone but yeah it just doesn't seem to be quite in the in the right headspace let's take a very brief break and then we'll be back with more top team chat before we move on to the midfield runners well, Mark Hughes, let's turn to you to talk a little bit about Charles Leclerc because we haven't perhaps got into him in terms of whether we think he can go toe-to-toe with Verstappen and Hamilton at this stage and win. It's only his second season in a top team. We've seen what he can do. He's a magnificent driver and there's a world champion in there, no question. Is it too early for him? All things being equal again with the, the factor about the cast. Do you, do you think he could come out of a season against Hamilton and Verstappen on equal terms and, and win? I think he's ready gone into this season. I think um, we saw last season still a little ghost of the patchiness that was there in his rookie seasons. But it's, 
I don't think an inherent trait. I think it's just a case of uh, the, the the data banks filling up. Um, so yeah, still a little bit. Uh, last year was still you couldn't guarantee he was going to be absolutely magnificent coming into a weekend. Um, but when he was, he really was. Um, and he sometimes got the impression he was hanging on a little bit by his fingernails. Um, you know that uh, spectacular quali lap in Singapore being a case in point. Um, but when you when you looked at that lap, it was absolutely stunning in terms of the commitment and the millimeters he was leaving between the wall on the approach to corners. Um, even compared to Lewis, it was given it you know probably three millimeters instead of one. He was so committed, and then he had has had a huge moment through the through the bridge. Somehow manages to hang on to it and still got momentum, and still it's that sort of exciting performance um, that you, when you're watching a, a great talent come into flower, um, and it's probably a little bit less exciting when you see it all rounded and um, composed. And I think we're probably going to see a more rounded, composed Leclerc this year. Um, and if the the car is up to it, and if the team operations are up to it, he's absolutely capable of, of fighting for a title, yes. I think it's just a question of those tiny little final sort of half a percent. Actually, another example from Singapore, more on the negative side, there was a phase in the race once he'd lost the lead through no fault of his own to um, Ferrari accidentally undercutting Vettel past him. There was a phase when they came through the traffic, I think it would have been Giovinazzi who led briefly, so there was a racing point in there. I forget exactly who it was, but but Vettel through that that lapping phase pulled quite a lot of time on on Leclerc, which was which was interesting. It was like it was something massive, like five seconds or something, which was 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 pretty uh, pretty amazing. Although that may have been because Leclerc was busy being furious as well, which uh, doesn't help. But no, I think I think you're right. We will see Leclerc in the narrow window. It's just those those key decision moments where you've kind of got to make that sort of thrusting move, which we've seen Hamilton is great at. I guess the classic example was Sochi in 2018 when strategy drops in behind Vettel and on a track where it's not easy to overtake, he managed to then nail Vettel to, to retake the win, which I thought was a, a brilliant example of, of, what Hamilton, uh, of what Hamilton can do. We should also talk about the other two top team drivers that we've kind of discounted from this title argument so far. One of them in Valtteri Bottas at Mercedes, I think, would uh, would be a little bit irritated at that as he sees himself as a title contender. Alex Albon at Red Bull, only in his second season, so I think his targets are a little bit different to, to fighting for the championship, although I'm sure he'd love to if he does it. Let's take Bottas first, Scott. I mean, he's talking about being even better this year. He's We, we saw how he stepped forward last year, but he still didn't quite have that consistency, as he admitted, to be there with Hamilton and there was quite a big gap in the end in terms of points so great season from Bottas his best in Formula 1 and yet still there's that that gap to Hamilton and regardless of anything else if he wants to win the world championship he's got to beat Hamilton in equal equipment regardless of what goes on with Verstappen or Leclerc or Vettel or whoever so what what about Bottas? Well there is this lingering question mark over whether Bottas who is undoubtedly good enough to to, to win races and, and control races and score great pole positions when the car's mega. But the, the doubt remains when the other guys are in the mix. So when the Ferrari's on song and or the Red Bull's on song. Because if you, if you take that top six, if everyone was equal, Bottas on his day is, is, is capable of being incredibly, incredibly quick. But we know that his weaknesses is, is really in, in races. He doesn't just doesn't seem to be able to force the issue enough. And I, I fear that he ends up not only behind Lewis, but behind Max and, and, and Charles and, and maybe even Seb as well. 
So it, it's it's difficult, really. He does need to he does need to make that make that step. He talked last year about having a a plan to beat to beat Hamilton, but I'm pretty sure that plan basically boils down to I've got to stop cutting out the the inconsistencies and the little errors because. Lewis is just so relentless. It doesn't really afford an opportunity for Bottas to just sort of walk away. The the the, the idea that Bottas could ever amount, could ever manage a, a sort of points advantage that Rosberg has had when when him and Hamilton were were together, I, I can't see that happening. I can't see Bottas resorting to the dark arts that Rosberg employed to get under Hamilton's skin. I don't think Hamilton's necessarily as in, as vulnerable to it either. And then you've got more external factors like the like the other teams as i mentioned that 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 i just think can catch bottas out so i don't want to completely dismiss him as a as a title prospect but i think he's got to he's got to hit the ground running he's got to prove that he can get on top of this car very very quickly not lose ground to hamilton early on but also he he absolutely has to step it up on 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 race day because the, if the title is as close as we think it could be this year then the championship will be decided on whether or not you turn fourth and fifth place finishes into second and third place finishes. Unfortunately, I think with Bottas, we saw last season, we saw a lot of good, but there were just examples of where it wasn't quite as good as it could have been. Oh, Germany was a bit of a, bit of a missed opportunity. Hungary, although on first impression, it looked like it was Leclerc's fault. Bottas did have his part in that that collision on the first lap. Silverstone, where Bottas couldn't even think about doing the one-stop strategy that, that won it for Hamilton. Obviously, the safety car intervened, but it was going to win it for Hamilton anyway. Italy, when Hamilton spent the race harrying Leclerc, and then when his tyres were off, Bottas had a tyre advantage but couldn't bring the same pressure. And you don't often see Bottas doing these kind of turnaround victories. I guess the closest was probably Austin last year when he had that tyre advantage over Hamilton and he came through and, and passed him. And although on paper that was one of those sort of easy things to do, quite often we see Bottas with a tyre advantage in the past not be able to to make up those things. So, so what do you think of, of Bottas, Mark? Is he is he basically there as a, as a very good support act to, to Hamilton? He's very good and it would be interesting to see how he compared with a different teammate in a top car. Um, police. Um, I was thinking back to Baku last year and his opening lap there was just magnificent. And I think if he can ever get himself into that space, he can just go and he looks, he can, he can look magnificent. He can, he's fully capable of dominating a race, but it has to be in a a narrow band of, of circumstance for him. He's not as good with the tyres as Lewis. Um, He's very, very meticulous in understanding where Lewis gets the advantage and where he can improve his own driving. Um, but, and then he, just as he does that, Lewis will invent a different way of doing it. And, and, and again, he he's always seems to be a step behind. Um, he started last year very strongly. Um, I, I suspect partly because the, um, his, the race engineering side, uh, on his side of the garage, had been boosted um, by the, the staff change there, and it took Lewis a while to recover. Because um, it, it was a guy that Lewis worked very closely with. Suddenly, um, Valerie had the benefit of all the things that they'd worked out together. So Lewis had to work out a different way of competing against him. That's what I mean. He, he always Lewis always finds a way. Whereas Valtteri's the the the, the guy that's uh, methodically doing his homework to be better and better and better and better. And then you know Lewis comes in and he'll just do it a different way. Um, so it's very hard to compete against that. And. Uh, after season, after season, after season, you, you you do wonder if he's not, at some level, sort of accepted that yeah, this, this is the best it's going to get. 
Yeah, it's, it's very difficult in that situation. When you look across the garage and you've got Lewis Hamilton sat there, it's a similar thing to being up against uh, Max Verstappen for Alex Albon, I, I guess. What, what do you make of Alex, Mark? I mean, he was he was impressive last year. I liked his ability to recover from the odd crash. He he turned in some really good race performances and it was a, it was a great, a really good first season, I would say. But up against Max Verstappen, he's got a huge challenge on his hands in only his second season. So I think we... We need to see him closer to Max, don't we? That's that's the key. Not necessarily on Max's pace, because that's a that's a pretty hard target. But he needs to be closer than he was last year. Yeah, considering that was his rookie season, it was very it's very easy to forget that that was his rookie season, especially in the second half when he was in the Red Bull. It was pretty impressive, really. Um, but it was as you would expect. It was peaky, and um, there were there were times where he was just um, you know too far up too far off max to to to, to be comfortable and you know you got dr marco always looking over your shoulder thinking mm, yeah is that mm, three tenths four tenths off that's mm, yeah we we need to be thinking about putting somebody else in this car you've always got that pressure so this is a massive test for him he's really got to hook those peaks up a bit better this year and um Thinking of his qualifying lap in Suzuka last year, where he matched to the hundredth um, max on a place he'd never been to before on a real driver's circuit, that's that's the level he's ultimately capable of. Uh, he's got to work out how to access it much more consistently. Um, he's not going to challenge Max over a season at the moment, but he's got to mm, at least get himself in a position where it looks feasible, where he might be able to do it in the future. Yeah, and uh, I think we we know there's a real driver in there. He's he's quick. He's he's good in race conditions. He can he can pass. Probably his best drive actually. I thought last year was Hockenheim. Funnily enough, which was overshadowed because his teammate Kvyat was on the podium. But Albon, actually, yeah, there were a couple of late gambles there by others that that, that knocked him off the podium. A gamble that he couldn't afford to take because he was already well placed. He should have been on the podium in the Toro Rossi. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think. Probably that day, actually, Albans was the best driver of anyone because he didn't make mistakes. And uh, I think that was yeah. the first time he'd driven a Formula 1 car in the wet as well. So uh, yes, pr- pretty pretty yeah. astonishing. For I think he did have one brief off at the hairpin early on when everyone was uh, was uh, was sliding off. So we'll, we'll forgive him that. But uh, yeah, there's, there's a driver in there. It'll be interesting to see his progress. So we'll, we'll take a quick final break and then we'll be back with lots of midfield chat. So Scott Mitchell, the midfield is traditionally very congested. We've suggested that probably that gap will still be there, even if it's closer. The feeling from testing was Racing Point are in very good shape. McLaren up there, Renault a few question marks over, AlphaTauri looking solid. Those seem to be the four sort of teams that we tentatively have at the front of an albeit very congested midfield. So, so what do you expect? Do you think it's going to be Racing Point and the and the pink Mercedes leading the way early on, or is there a bit more? bit more to be said on that one uh i need I, I would like to see a little bit more um of what racing points car will be like when we actually get to when we get to melbourne and we get to to that race weekend because i feel like th- what the direction they've gone in like cop- copying another car is not quite the same as copying someone's homework where you literally just have to fill in a few uh, a few details on a page so there is a lot more nuance to it and I just wonder if they've obviously had a very good start it's, it's all looked pretty smooth and, and, and the car does look quick just wonder if that will translate exactly when we get onto a track when there are other variables and and that sort of thing but 
as it stands, my expectation is that we're going to have a quite controversial leader of the of the midfield in Racing Point. We know that the rival's position on on that car is basically don't like it but have to go along with it because it, it isn't illegal. It's just not exactly how they they think you should go about designing a Formula One car. And then you've just got this absolute mass of teams trying to work out like where they sit and how close they'll be or if they'll be ahead of racing point in McLaren and, and Renault and Alpha Tauri as well, which I was not entirely sure about after the first week of testing, but everything I saw and, and, and heard about that team and from that team in, in, in week two actually suggests that that they're looking quite good. So yeah, very, very, very congested. I think a smaller gap to the big three teams. And as you said, there's a there's a couple of people that would have you believe that Racing Point might even be trying to snipe for Ferrari early on. I'm not entirely convinced that's going to happen, but hey, it would be pretty good, wouldn't it, if we saw uh, Racing Point fighting for, for maybe a, a podium in Melbourne in shock conditions. We've seen some slightly random Australian Grand Prix before, so stranger things have happened. And we know that that team and Sergio Perez... Are pretty, they're pretty good experts, aren't they, at, at sniffing out a podium in unlikely circumstances. Yeah, well, Perez, we know how good a midfield operator he is. He's a brilliant executor of races, and uh, although qualifying's not, he's not one of the best, very best qualifiers in Formula 1. He normally has a, a solid qualifying record. But it, it's interesting, Mark, isn't it? Because there's this whole question mark with Racing Point over the second driver in Lance Stroll, who's had his moments, but... He's had three seasons in Formula One now, and he's still not really shown signs of consistency. Just tiny errors in qualifying mean that he's he's often starting a bit further back. So, is he a driver? If that racing point is just at the front of the midfield, that can help them to fourth, or is all the pressure on him to to raise his game and show that he's capable of week in week out doing what Perez does and racking up seventh, eighth, ninth in a very congested part of the field? Yeah, I think of, of um, even more importance in terms of where Lawrence Stroll sees that team going and uh, the vision he has for that team, of, of, you know, in its Aston Martin guys from 21, of expanding it and making it, you know, one of the top teams. Um, even though it's his son, Lance is going to have to justify his place in there. And at the moment, his performance is on at a level, consistent level. Um, they would do that. So I think this he, he, there's some potential in there, um, but he's got to hook it all together and it, much more effectively than he did, than he did last year. Um, last year's car was a particularly difficult one for his way of driving. So uh, this one looks a bit more compliant. So it, it might it might be that it's a, a better a better foundation for him to make progress with. Um, don't think he's going to threaten Perez over the season. Um, but the car, I mean, from what we've seen, um, I would say it's probably the, the best of of that midfield or the, the second, the best of the rest. Um, very closely matched by McLaren in testing. Um, the Renault not far behind either, actually, but not, not over a race stint. Um, but they're all saying we've got a lot of performance to put on the cars uh, for Melbourne. So we'll see what the picture looks like there. But it's it's an incredibly good racing team. And I think, you know, when over the years, one of the things that many, many people in the paddock have said when we've been watching, say, Ferrari um, have a lot of operational difficulties with a very fast car. Um, people say if Racing Point was running you know, was running that car, it would be winning the championship. And I think it is that good. They, they do uh, great strategies. The pit stops are always spot on. It's a very, very sharp operation. 
Um, so I'm expecting a lot from uh, that team this year. Yeah, when you consider they got those back-to-back fourth places in the constructors in 17 and 18. 18, they were particularly mighty. I think both driver, each driver on their own would have been fourth in the constructors championship. But that team, the team was still struggling financially in that point as well. So, you know, defeating much, much better off outfits. So with that that resource there now, they they should be in a good place. I think the point you make about the car changing, obviously, because they've they've copied the Mercedes effectively. It's a it is a more benign car now. It's, a, it's some of those foibles that have made it a bit harder to drive seem to have been eliminated. So that that could help Stroll. But it, it's interesting that dynamic with the other midfield battlers because if you look at their driver lineup versus McLaren with Sainz and Norris versus Renault with Ricardo and Ocon, you almost say that that the racing point driver lineup is is less potent part, primarily because of Stroll. Because I, I really rate Perez, but. Those other teams there have got two two sort of strong drivers who can deliver consistently. I, th- I think so. That that's the big question, isn't it, Scott? What do you think think of that? Do you think this could be close enough that that it, it could come down as much to driver execution as uh, as the the team performance at that at that part of the field? Yeah, absolutely. Especially because if especially if it is that close, because I don't see Perez and Stroll as being the two drivers that you can rely on to absolutely nail it in qualifying you know Perez is going to get a a good amount out of the car isn't he but I just don't think he has that that stunning one one lap in him that say a a Sainz or a Ricardo or an Ocon have and and even Norris you know showed particularly strongly in in qualifying last year as as a rookie and Stroll as you know you you two have you've documented his woes woes quite well and qualifying last year was was really weak especially that horrible run of uh, Q1 exits in a car that was capable of, of of being much higher on the grid so with this generation of car that's harder to harder than ever to to follow the I, I think the the importance of grid position is just going to be exaggerated even more and in that situation, unless Racing Point does have a massive advantage in the race and strategy and a, a bit of stroll first lap wizardry can can overhaul the deficit from qualifying, I think they're going to struggle to turn the potential into, into points if it's that close. Because yeah, just if if Renault's in the mix, I just think Ricardo and Ocon is the is the best lineup of any of any team outside the the, the big three. I think that's a really, really top class lineup. So you're gonna to need to be firing on all cylinders to to, to dominate the, the midfield or lead the midfield at, at most races this year. And that is, if there's one question mark over racing point, I'd say it's the, the drivers, particularly in qualifying. Yeah, Renault across the board is going to be one of the interesting stories this year. There's all the question marks about about the future. You've got two drivers there kind of vying to be to be the, the leader. Ricardo effectively deposed Nico Hülkenberg last year as, as the team spearhead, but particularly with some fantastic race performances. The, the qualifying comparison was a bit tighter. It's still just in Ricardo's favour. But yeah, Sundays he, he was really strong. But we know how ambitious Ocon is. And, and we saw in the racing point days when he was with Perez, there are a few moments there. So Renault's got the potential to be you know, have a have a fantastic season and use all their resource and their drivers to be at the front of the midfield, or it could turn into a to a huge mess, couldn't it, uh, Mark? It's it's right now. Testing suggested it. It could still go either way for that team. We could be in a few months' time talking about what a what a tremendous recovery Renault have made and they're back on the road towards the front. Or, oh my God, what's going on here? This is an absolute absolute mess. Yeah, I mean, the, the initial um, picture painted from testing is that it's, it's about where it was last year. Um, and that's 
sort of what Alan Prost was um, intimating at the launch of the car, um, even though uh, Team Boss Cyril Beatbo was uh, um, a bit more upbeat. Um, I, I'm not, I can't really see that Renault is going to make the big step this year. Um, and I think it's, its hope has got to be, A, that uh, it, it continues into the new formula in 21, and B, uh, that the uh, cost caps bring the others down towards them. Um, but I, I, I don't see it punching above its weight at the moment. Um, I don't see any sign that it, that that's changed. And they're running a car that uh, was created by a tech department headed by two people who are no longer there, which is probably not great. Um, you've got new people betting in. So, no, I don't think this is going to... I'd like to be wrong, um, but I, I, I just don't see this is going to be the, the season in which they make that breakthrough. I must admit, I actually fear that certainly early in the season, AlphaTauri might give them quite a bit of trouble as well. They seem to have quite a nice, solid car. You know, two two decent drivers with experience under their belt. Gasly with a someone who's capable of delivering a touch of magic sometimes, not so much when he was in the Red Bull, but... With with Toro Rosso, Alfaturi, he's uh, he, he's he's got that in his locker, so that could pile yet more pressure onto onto Renault. It looks like they've got a few little issues with the car they've got to get on top of, but yeah, I think the big question we're going to be talking about this until they sign up for twenty one. What is what is the future for that team? Yeah, Bitable says that you know they've got every indication that that things should continue and that in in principle they're they're committed long term, but. Um, principle doesn't really stand for anything especially if the works team repeats its its slump of, from last year even i feel like even finishing fifth in the constructors championship would just be would just be very detrimental to that team's future but as it stands you know what if they get beaten by their customer team again and they get beaten by a, a small team that's copied another team's design that's it's gonna i how big a question mark is that team's future gonna have over it and i think Based on what we saw and, and, and heard in, in testing, I think the Renault seems that they seem to be better prepared than ever. They've got done more dyno running than before. They had a pretty trouble-free couple of weeks testing. But you know, does the car look that mega? Does it look like it's got the pace to be a, a proper a proper threat to the not just the front of the midfield, but they've got to close that gap to the top three. And you know, I I, I've, I agree completely with what Mark said about the the fact that if you know they're working with a car that's been built by people that weren't considered good enough to lead to lead the team going forward on the technical side. I've said that I've said that a couple of times now. So there are just all these question marks over the team, and if they even if they do continue, are they going to have done enough in the early months of this year to convince Ricardo? Is Ricardo going to be capable of fighting for for sevenths and eighths? at the start of the season right the way through to the summer and is he going to settle for that so lots of question marks I feel like however tight that midfield is and however much there is the opportunity for different teams to enjoy some success there I feel like no team in that midfield has as much pressure on it as Renault does right now yeah we're going to be talking about Renault a lot this season I think there's uh, there's some big uh, big question marks there and I think for the good of Formula One we'd like to see them you know pulling through and, and performing well but it's one of the teams that should have the potential to to work its way across to that that big three over over time, and of course McLaren's trying to do that. They've changed a few things on their car to try and unlock more performance to to explore. Obviously, we've got Racing Point very upwardly upwardly mobile there. Uh, there are of course a few other teams in the midfield. We've we touched on four of them. We've got this 
what we've kind of tentatively got as as the three at the back of the midfield, but it's so close, it wouldn't take much to uh, to, to change that. We've got Alfa Romeo, we've got Haas, and we've got Williams. Mark Alfa Romeo seemed a little bit concerning at times in testing. It wasn't bad, and mm. there were some there were some flashy times uh, sets uh, in in the early days of testing, certainly. But yeah. sort of slipped back. Where, where do we think? they are they seem to be treading water a little bit in terms of their performance i I think they're a little bit behind the curve in um in in terms of of readiness um i think they still have um quite a slow turnaround in um production so they've got uh they've got a great wind tunnel there and it's been expanded um but they still seem to be struggling to get the pieces on the car quickly they turned up with some New pieces uh, in the second week, which uh, didn't seem to work. So I think it, it's just it's it's not it's not buzzing yet. It's not, it, it's Frederick Vasseurs had to sort of rebuild that team because it was it was really down um, to, to the threads, and it's it's taken a while. And I, I think the it was a bit of a misleading picture from two years ago when you had Leclerc occasionally as a rookie. Um, doing these amazing performances and, and occasionally fighting for the, the, the you know the best of the rest position, but I, I think that was more him than the, the car or the team. And I think um, now you don't have an outstanding performer, and now you got two perfectly good drivers in Raikkonen and Giovinazzi. But I think it, it it's a it's at a position where it really needs a driver who can squeeze an extra couple of tenths out when it comes to it. And I don't think they have that at the moment because it's just not quite there. They're, um, the card doesn't. It looked okay, but okay is not really going to uh, cut it even for the head of the midfield. Um, it, it's got every everything's in place for uh, the the in terms of the um, the facilities um, and the management. It's 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 there to be put together, but I don't think it's together yet. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd agree with that with Alfa Romeo. The point about the drivers is is a valid one. I think Raikkonen is a. He's a very good, consistent, dependable performer. He lacks that edge of magic that he once had. Good, precise feedback as well, which means he's valuable. But and you got Antonio Giovinazzi, who, who is a good driver, but he was he was frustratingly erratic and just too many little errors last year. And yep, he'd had two years basically out of racing. He'd only turned out, I think, did a couple of Grand Prix in Le Mans basically in the the two years before. But we need to see him. You know, consistently nailing it in order to, to to get that team to a point where it's delivering points. But Scott, what do you make of Williams? We know they're a lot better. They're at least in the mix. They're not an embarrassment as, as frankly they were last year. But George Russell said that they're definitely the the slowest car. Do you think we're expecting that to still be the case, or are they close enough to make a, a real fight of it? Well, I think they can still be the slowest car and make a fight of it because that was the big problem last year, wasn't it? It's F1 is so competitive nowadays and when you try and stick to that old school, traditional way of going racing and you don't have the budget or the people that can really can really do the job with it, uh, there's no shame in being the last of the 10 when you're at an elite level. The problem is when you're a distant last and I, from what we've seen in, in testing, I would say that... that that Williams is certainly in the mix at the lower end of the the midfield, and when you've got a driver like George Russell on the books as well, I think they've got the potential for the odd uh, for the odd starring role. I think George said not to expect Q twos and Q threes at the start of the year, but 
I don't know. I, I'd be. I don't know about the two of you, but I'd be a little bit disappointed if I didn't see George at least maybe having a stab at getting into Q2 in Australia. Maybe I'm. Maybe I'm going the other way and I'm setting them slightly too high expectations. But I, I would like to see the. I would like to see George have a genuine opportunity not to qualify uh, to qualify not on the back row of the grid. I think Latifi is just a bit too inexperienced and lost a bit of run in during testing with various little dramas. So I think Russell is their big chance, obviously second year and a top class talent. I'd just love to see him not just fighting exclusively for 19th on the grid. He should be able to do it, shouldn't he, Mark? If that car is in the mix, yeah. there will be days when, when he can haul it up there. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a car that looks um, maybe if, if it is the slowest, it's not by much. It's maybe by a 10th or so. So, that's enough to, when you get a different set of circumstances or when you get an overperformance from a driver, to, you know, to, to, to allow it to do something um, a bit eye-catching. And I think George is fully capable of doing that. I'd, I'd be surprised if, if we didn't see him occasionally in Q2. Um, they, they've, they've had the really low-hanging fruit um, is, is got them from uh, last year's performance to this year's. I mean, that's... Uh, Relative to the competition, they've made up a, a huge amount more than any other team. But that's because last year's was so bad. I mean, if they if they'd made up, if they made up the same um, amount of performance next year as they made this year, they'd be up at the front with Mercedes. So that, that's probably not going to happen. So, but it, I, I think it gets tougher from here for Williams. Um, but at least it's it's no longer. Uh, embarrassing it it's perform it will be there pitching with other other teams it will be racing other teams rather than just two williams drivers racing each other you know half a lap behind yeah i think a successful season for williams this year will be a be a respectable last don't be an embarrassing last and that that's that's enough i mean for a team of that heritage and that name that might sound not very uh, ambitious but they need to just be okay this year and then try and do something with the 21 project that, uh, that allows them to, to leap forward, which is going to be a, a bit of a challenge. The one thing we haven't mentioned is Haas, who had a deeply weird season last season. Uh, quite a low profile in pre-season testing. Again, a few little flashes that, that suggested they might be able to really make something of themselves in the midfield. But overall, it's more about have they eliminated their problems of last year. What, what do you think of, of Haas, Mark? They, they strike me as a team that... I wouldn't be completely surprised if they suddenly sneak into Q3 in Australia, but I equally wouldn't yeah. be at all surprised if they <laughs> fell in Q1 either. Yeah, I mean, it, historically, it's uh, they're very good. There's something in the DNA of that car of, the, of their cars that um, works very well in Melbourne. Um, so I wouldn't be at all surprised. Um, but uh, as you say, very low key, couple of weeks testing, bit Ferrari like, and they, they seem to be uh, concentrating on. Just getting a, a, a minute, a very small grain understanding of exactly what's going on with the car and trying to fully understand it, uh, rather than even even looking at what everybody else is doing. And it's quite understandable after the nightmare of last year. So, uh, yeah, I think hopefully they won't be thrown a curved ball, which they they were last year, and just one of those things that was an unusual trait in the car, but they were so small. A team in terms of the resources and depth that it took best part of the season to discover what it was that was um, having them over. So as long as everything goes smoothly and there's nothing, there's no ghost in the machine to to trip them up. They'll yeah, I can see them regularly being up, upper end of the, uh, the that midfield group. 
Yeah, well, we know when things go right there. It's a, it's a good little team. And I think, again, the the, the baseline summary of the, the midfield is it's going to be quite tight again. And hopefully we will see days where, where everyone's in uh, in good shape and we can we'll see a good good battle uh, in that area of the field. Uh, I guess one brief thing we should we should address is the whole question of the, the 2020 versus 21 development. Obviously, Mark, there's a lot of work to be done with the, with the new 21 cars. So that is going to have an impact on the development war this year in that most teams will want to get their upgrades out of the way in the first half of the season and then be 100% on, on 21 unless they have to change because of the, the the battle of the situation. Do you think that that 21 project is going to have quite a big impact on what we see in terms of team progress over the year? Yeah, I think it will probably see less um, development from beginning of the season to end. And then traditionally, we'll still see some. And obviously, there's there's always... Um, there's always the temptation when you're fighting for a place in the constructors' championship that's worth a lot of money to prioritise the now over the future. So there's that, that there's always that opposing pull. Um, yeah, I, I can I can picture um, maybe uh, the top teams being more more comfortable with um, having the resources to do to do both. And and probably seeing that gap between the top three and the others opening out as the season goes on because of that. Yep, I think that's uh, that's going to be the case. It, it's it's going to be difficult for a team if they're in a bit of a close fight to work out whether they carry on a little bit with the twenty car or not. So that's that's going to be the uh, the, the the main uh, main challenge, I guess. But that that'll be just sort of bubbling along uh, in the background on one of the the underlying stories of the season. Well, we've given a bit of an overview of the teams, and now. I think this is the first time you've been exposed to this, Mark, on the podcast. But we are now going to, against my better judgment, hand over to Scott for what we call Scott's People, where he comes up with a, a nonsense question and throws it out into the world. So uh, with a due sense of dread, take it away, Scott. I don't think it's nonsense. I think this is a continuation of a question that we asked before the second week of testing, which had um, just a crazy number of people get in touch. Uh, and I'll actually start, I'll ask Mark the question actually and see what he comes up with. So Mark, the question was, if you could own any car from F1 history, what would it be and why? So that's what I put out to our legion of listeners and, and readers. But before I read off a few more that I've had since we did the last episode, what would your car be and why? I'm a be a Leger JS11 from 1979, just because it's gorgeous and because it um, it was such a shock to... Uh, to see that team suddenly dominate the first two races of that season after just being, you know, nearly there for a couple of years. Fantastic. Ed, you'd never actually committed to an answer when we had when we did the last one. Gary Anderson said it would be one of uh, it would be one of a couple of Jordans, I think if I remember correctly, the, the 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 two that he was particularly proud of sort of his involvement with and and how overreaching it was, but you never you dodged the question. You never actually committed an answer. Well, my default answer is I do like the Eiffeland E21, but that one's been magnificently restored and uh, in, in the UK, and somebody does actually own that one. I, I would quite—I think I mentioned it last time. I would quite like a March 881, just because I think that's such a, a significant car, and I just think that would be a good one to have there and say, right, there's a car that you can say in 1988 is the future of Formula One. There's a straight line from that car. Actually, I would argue all the way through to today in terms mm. of that heralded the real, real aero era shall we say and that that was Adrian Newey of course so that that's why I think that car is so important even though it only had a few moments where it was really able to show but it was uh, 
that there were moments when it was when it was bothering very occasionally McLaren in that year even. Yeah. Yeah, it was. He, it was interesting talking to him about that car. He said that because he'd been working in IndyCar um, for a couple of seasons, and where the um, aero efficiency was incredibly important, obviously running on on the ovals, and so the teams over there were getting a lot of detail on that. Whereas he said when he come back to Formula One, every, it was just about horsepower, and everybody was just getting more and more power from the turbos and putting bigger wings on. And they'd sort of forgotten about the niceties of aero efficiency, and he just rethought the whole thing. He he, he looked at those, even the cars that were doing the winning, the the McLarens and the Ferraris before that. He looked at them and just thought they're they're just big trucks. They don't need to be like that. And it was a completely different line of thinking. And as you say, that um, you can draw a line from that through to now. But this is why this uh, topic is so good because it creates uh, creates talking points. And I had loads of people chiming in to just say, "Oh, that they were they thought it was brilliant that someone else had the same sort of dream car as, as they did." So I'll rattle for you through a few more just now. Um, obviously, the uh, the the reason everyone has a different reason for for choosing their car. One of my favourite reasons I've got so far is someone picking the 1967 Ferrari 312, and the reason they gave is because exhausts. That's that spaghetti exhausts. It yeah, had the big exactly. spaghetti exhaust. Yeah, and and then another one from uh, uh, John Oriovitz. Um, he is he has picked a continuation on from that. I don't think an F an F one car has changed so dramatically by the addition of one letter. So we had the Ferrari three hundred and twelve from Alex Ware, and John Oriovitz has picked the Ferrari three hundred and twelve T from seventy five. Yeah, so beautiful. you add a Add a T to the end, and the car suddenly becomes dramatically different. Um, on the other end of the spectrum for cars that looked good or, well, went quickly, uh, I had two different uh, two different inputs for the 1997 Lola, um, <laughs> which, un- unironically, my favourite F1 livery of all time. It married all the team sponsors and partners in such a perfect way. That's from At 80 mm. Wear Design. But they did add brackets, don't mention performance, mm. which, you know, I think that's probably fair. That, that, that Lola, um, I believe, isn't great value because I remember last year speaking to Ricardo Rossett, who owns the Tyrrell raced and he owns a, a footwork he raced. And he did apparently look at the, at the Lola, but uh, I think it was, uh, it was not a great, uh, a great value buy, shall we say. So I think he switched on to trying to find his, uh, his uh, F3000 uh, car that he took second in the championship. So, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe the Lola might not be the, uh, the, the, the best value one out there. I don't think it was particularly good value when it was a contemporary Formula One car. It was either. great value so, from my perspective. I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> it is probably the um, the most money spent on a Formula One car per Grand Prix start. Oh, not Grand Prix start, sorry. Attempted Grand Prix start. So what else did we have? We had uh, Juan Carlos Agoglia suggested the BT44, which I thought, yep, yeah, do you know what? That's perfectly perfectly harmless. Um, Ewan suggested the 99 Minardi M01 just because of Stefan Sarazan, to be honest. Um, I heard a rumour that Stefan Sarazan is still spinning on the entry to the start-finish straight into Lagos after that Yeah, crash. I think if you've got that car, make sure the throttle is okay. Yeah, they definitely do not want that to stick. I hear that that goes terribly. Uh, we also had a shout from Patrick Down for the Ferrari 641. 
nice, which man. I don't think that is a controversial suggestion at all. And then we will end with the suggestion of the Tyrrell 007, and that is from Brian. I'm not going to read his full Twitter handle out because it's a bunch of numbers. But yeah, quite a quite a tasty selection. We had a lot more a lot more sort of older generation cars this one. When you uh, you missed it on the last time we did this, Mark, there were a lot of post 2000 uh-huh. suggestions. Um, which I said was just quite nice because maybe that suggests that this current, not this current generation of car necessarily, but at least cars of the last 10 or 20 years are still getting people excited in the way that sort of the older generation of cars did as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, there's less visual difference between the cars, but I I guess when you're um, as nerdy about it as a a lot of people are, um, you pick out those differences regardless. No, absolutely. So I would just rec- I would just request that for the uh, for for the next edition of this, obviously this is our season preview podcast. This might be a little bit redundant uh, by the time we next uh, come around to recording. But I would I've got a couple of variants on this occasion. I'd quite like to know, given the excitement around the uh, Mercedes dual axis steering uh, testing, I'd like to know the most random or coolest thing anyone th- has seen from preseason testing over the years and as we're coming we're gearing up to australia i'll make it a bit more topical and i'd like to know what everyone's favorite season opening grand prix is so you can either send a message to at we are the race on social media or at, at s mitchell f1 which is to get abuse to me directly i'm just going to add a brief uh, a brief postscript to your uh, your question about the cars and uh, they'd like to own with the cars i'd least like to own which would be either the ferrari 31cc for or 312T5. I can't remember which one was responsible because it was dark, but when I was racing in the Ferrari Challenge at the World Finals in Monza, there were a lot of Formula One cars running, and I I went into the garage next door in the dark because there were toilets in every other garage, so I was just diving in there. What I didn't realise is in the dark, there was one of these Ferraris, and if people can imagine the shape of it, the front wing is sort of very pronounced, smashed my shin into it. And Ow. so that that's just the practicalities that you need to you need to think about when you uh, <laughs> is it going to be painful if you hit it with your shin? And I think that's one of the one of the worst ones to do that with. No, that's absolutely fair. What would be the what would be the best car for you to kick accidentally? Probably uh, appropriate the ninety seven loader again. That's uh, that's probably the uh, the right <laughs> car. Something uh, or, or life maybe or uh, Andrea Moda. All all my favourite cars, but. Uh, yeah, def- definitely not. Definitely not the Ferrari. And uh, although you could probably argue that the T5, which uh, obviously had, uh, was was extremely uncompetitive in in 1980 because ground effect moved on so so fast, was a, a car that probably merited a, a bit of a a bit of a kick. But the T4, obviously, uh, very very successful. But anyway, I've I've digressed a bit there. I think we should probably call a halt to proceedings now. We have given you a bit of an overview of what to expect ahead of the coming season. Uh, we'll, of course, be there down under and at all the races through the year to bring you all the news and analysis. Do head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen to read what we've had to say about uh, about things heading into the season. Obviously, subscribe to the podcast and do check out our YouTube channel as well where we've got regular videos. Well, next time you hear from us, we're likely to be in Australia, so we'll see you then. <laughs>